Okay, let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll read our passage. Father, I, uh, I really feel a, a need for your Holy Spirit to come and lift me up and be able to speak through me, to Lord, to use me to open up this text. I pray that you'd help me to teach it, Lord, accurately. Lord, let me not do violence to this text in any way. Let me not rest it because I want it to say something that it doesn't say. I pray you'd help me to be honest always with your truth and your word. We pray, Lord, that you would draw out application for your people. Lord, convict each heart if there's areas in which they are sinning against you. Maybe not even knowing it, but Lord, deal with each heart. Show each one what you'd have us to do as a response to your word today. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. I'm going to be speaking to you on your favorite subject today, paying taxes. That's what the sermon's about. Will Rogers once made this little statement. He said, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of truth in that statement. <laughs> you know, paying taxes is probably one of the more distasteful duties that we perform. I don't think people naturally enjoy paying taxes. In fact, there have been riots and revolts that have started over taxation. In fact, paying taxes was one of the major reasons for the American Revolutionary War around the year 1776, 1777, 1778. That was caused in large part because we felt like we were being unfairly taxed by the English government. So, so taxation is not a small matter for us to deal with. And as Christians, God's word has something to say about it. And we need to take heed. Nine days ago was April 15th. Did everyone get your taxes? Everyone's got your taxes paid? You're all, you're all good? <laughs> so <laughs> if you had to make out a check, were you feeling especially generous when you were writing that, that check to the United States government? Oh, I think I'll just add a little tip on that tax for you. <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? And you know, it was even worse in the first century. The Jews... To the Jews, it was especially irksome to them to have to pay taxes because they were not paying taxes to Jews. 
they were paying it to a Roman occupying force. And these Romans were Gentiles. These Romans were pagans. They were blasphemers. They were idolaters. And they demanded tribute from these people, the Jewish people that they had subjugated. How would you like it if we, for the most part, were a Christian nation and a non-Christian nation defeated us and then they demanded that we pay tribute to them? I mean, we would, we would have problems with that too. That was the situation that the Jews were in in the first century. Now, in Luke chapter 20, the entire chapter is basically a sparring contest between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Jesus has entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, and then he went to the temple. The following day, he came back to the temple, and he cast out all the buyers and the sellers. And he overturned the money changers. And when he did that, that just infuriated the, the temple priests. And you can understand why. I mean, this is their domain. They're the ones that are in charge of the temple. And here comes this guy. He's not even a Levite. Here, here he comes, and he just casts everybody out. And they're thinking, what gives him the right to do that? Who does he think he is? He's not a priest. He's not a chief priest like me. That's my job. And so it says in verse 47 that he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people... I'm sorry, this is chapter 19, verse 47... The chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they couldn't find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. And so then they come to him in chapter 20, and they say, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to cast everybody out of the temple? And Jesus answers with that brilliant question. He, he likes to answer questions with questions. And he says, so do you tell me this? By what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Was it from heaven or men? And they start reasoning. Well, if we say it was from heaven, then he's going to tell us, well, why didn't you believe him when he spoke about me? But if we say it's from men, they're going to stone us because everybody knows John was a prophet. Well, we don't know by what authority he did that. Well, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do my things. Jesus wins round one. Then he goes on the offensive and he starts telling them this parable. And it's a parable about a wealthy landowner that rents out this vineyard that he had planted to vine growers. He gave this vineyard every opportunity to bear great fruit because he took all the rocks out, he tilled the soil, he planted a tower in it, he put a wine vat in it. Then he went away on a long journey, but he, he set these vine growers in charge to work the land and to bring forth the fruit and they had entered into a contract that the landowner would get a certain percentage of the crops and then all the rest would go to the vine growers. Well, when, when, when it was time to receive the produce, he sends his slave to get the fruit. The problem is that the vine growers wouldn't pay up. Instead, they beat up the slave and they sent him back empty-handed. So what does the uh, owner do? He sends another slave. It sounds a little bit odd to us. You think oh, immediately he'd, take, he'd get the police involved. But he doesn't. He sends another slave. And they beat up this slave and sent him away shamefully. He still sends another slave. And they do the same thing to him. And then he says, okay, what I'll, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. They're surely going to respect my son. But when the son comes, they think, ah, this is the heir. If we kill him, the vineyard will be ours. And so they kill the son. 
And then he says, okay, so what will this landowner do to those wicked vine growers? And the people that are listening to him say, he's going to take away. He's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end and then take away that vineyard and give it to others who will bring forth the fruit of it. And Jesus says, you've answered rightly. He says, the stone which the builders rejected, this becomes the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone is going to be dashed to pieces, but whoever the, the stone falls on them, they're going to be ground to powder. Speaking about judgment upon the religious leadership of his own day who rejected him and would not submit their lives to the rule and reign of God through his son. So Jesus basically is predicting what they're going to do to him. He's saying, I know exactly what you're going to do to me. Very quickly, you're going to put me to death. But at the same time, I know what's going to happen to you. God is going to destroy you. Now, that brings us to verse 19. And that brings us to, to this next section where they are trying to lay a trap to catch Jesus in a statement. They hate him, they want him dead, and so they're coming up with a plan to execute him, to get rid of him. Now, there's two... Our, our text this morning divides itself naturally into two parts. There is a question and there's an answer. And I call this the deceitful question of the religious leaders and the discerning answer of the Lord Jesus. Okay, let's look at the deceitful question. And there's actually a lot said in the text about this question. A lot that leads up to the question that is asked. First of all, who is involved in this question that was being asked? Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. Now here in Luke it says that scribes and chief priests were involved. Over in Matthew and Mark, it says the Pharisees and the Herodians teamed up to ask this question. So if you just put all of the scripture together, you get a more accurate answer to your question. We've got scribes. Those are the ones that copied God's law. So they passed it from one generation to another. They were the lawyers, the experts in the law. Uh, you've got the chief priests. Those are the leading priests among the people. You've got Herodians, and you've got Pharisees. Now, a Herodian. We don't meet Herodians very often in the Bible, just a few times. What was a Herodian? A Herodian was a professing Jew who was a follower of Herod. There were those who supported the Roman government, which was a little odd because Jews, for the most part, were anti-Rome. They didn't like Rome. They were the occupying force. They were the Gentiles. But these Herodians, they professed to be Jewish, but in their education and their habits and in their taste, they were Roman. And they endorsed and accepted the Roman government over them. Then we've got Pharisees. Do you think a Pharisee and a Herodian would have got along real well? Not at all. Because Pharisees were, they were Hebrews through and through, from first to last. They, they were wanting the return of Judaism to biblical law, to biblical uh, faith, biblical godliness. They were the ones who would say, we have never been enslaved to anyone. They were fiercely loyal to their Hebrew roots in the scripture. And so here we've got these Pharisees who are anti-Rome. We've got the Herodians who are pro-Rome. 
And they're strange bedfellows, aren't they? But yet they're linking arms together because they have something more important than their differences that they want to accomplish. And the thing that's more important to them is to get rid of Jesus Christ because he is messing with them. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus has been messing with them. He has been decreasing their influence and popularity with the people and he's been growing in influence and popularity among the people and they can't stand that. So that's who's involved in this. Now, what did they want to do? Verse 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to lay hands on him. That's a euphemism for take somebody by force and deal violently with them. They wanted to take him and they wanted to execute him. But there, there was a major problem with that. They, they couldn't execute him because... Jews at this period of time did not have the power of capital punishment. That was reserved only for the Romans. So Jews were unable to execute any of their people. They had to appeal to the Romans to execute their people. So they want to lay hands on him. Now, I, what you need to understand is that this is not taking place for the first time. There has been growing hostility that has been mounting for many, many months, perhaps years, by the time we get to Luke chapter 20. And I thought it might be helpful just to do a quick survey through Luke to see how this has been building. The first place that we see the religious leaders being hostile to Jesus comes in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand, but he made the horrible mistake of doing it on a Sabbath day. And the religious leaders did not like that one bit. And it says in verse 11, But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Why? Because he healed them on the Sabbath day. Can you think of a greater sin than that? Healing someone on a Sabbath day. <laughs> They're filled with rage that he had broken their rules. Next time we find opposition mounting is in Luke 11. And there we find the religious leaders... Name-calling. Verse 15, they say, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Basically, they're saying that Jesus was doing His miraculous works by the power of Satan. They're saying He's, he's, he's possessed by Satan, and that's why He has the power to do these miraculous works. And Jesus comes back and He says, You know, there's only one unforgivable sin. You guys need to be very, very careful. If they hadn't committed the sin, they were very close to doing it. And then we find at the end of that very same chapter, Jesus publicly begins to rebuke the religious leadership. There are three woes that he levels against the Pharisees and three woes that he levels against the lawyers. And at the very end of all that, in verse 53, it says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. This is way back in chapter 11, nine chapters ago. So they've been continually trying to, to find something against Jesus. Then when we come to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. 
They thought it was a terrible indictment against him that he would receive sinners and eat with them. In fact, that was a glory to him. He was the friend of sinners. But here we find their hostility, their mumbling, their murmuring, their grumbling. Again, in chapter 16, verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They mumbled, they grumbled, they scoffed, they opposed him. In chapter 19, verse 39, when Jesus was riding triumphantly into Jerusalem on the donkey, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't let them praise you like this. That's horrible. Don't, don't let them do that. So they're commanding Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to get them to stop shouting and praising him. So you can see there was constant friction between the religious leadership and Jesus Christ, and it culminates in the verse we just read, 1947 and 48. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And after he stumped them by answering about where he got his authority, and then giving this parable, which they finally understood at the very end, then they said, that's the last straw. We've got to do something, and we've got to do something quick. This guy has got to go. Now, why did they want to do it? Verse 19 says, The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour, and they feared the people. Why? Because they understood that he spoke this parable against them. They understood that he spoke the parable against them. Here goes Jesus again, speaking out publicly against us. We're not going to let this go on anymore. That's it. This guy has got to die. We're not going to take it anymore, they're saying. He's speak, he, what he's doing is he's lessening our influence and popularity among the people. We can't have that. Do you remember it says that because of envy he delivered they delivered Jesus up to Pilate because of envy. They wanted the people's applause and popularity. They wanted the influence. They, they wanted people um, praising them. That's why they went around in long robes and they offered long prayers and they rang the trumpet. They blew the trumpet before they gave publicly. They wanted the attention and the applause and the praise of the people. And Jesus, through his teaching ministry was decreasing that influence. The people are flocking to him now. They're leaving the religious leadership. They're following him and hanging on every word that he has to say. Now, why didn't they do it? If they wanted to take him by force, why didn't they do it? It says here, because they feared the people. They feared the people. Do you remember back in chapter 20, verse 6, they're thinking to themselves, if we say that John the Baptist's authority came from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. See, they're afraid of an uprising. We have to try to go back into the first century and pl plant ourselves there. Imagine this man walking from village to village, and thousands are always around him. Thousands are following him. Whenever he opens his mouth to speak, they're there. They're watching his miracles. They're seeing him heal. He has such power, such authority amongst the people that they're afraid of what 
would happen if they take him and the people see them, they see that they arrest him. They've got to do something subversive. They've got to do something behind the scenes. And that's why they wait for an opportune time when Judas will betray his master to them. They're concerned for their safety. They're concerned for their own well-being. So what did they do? Verse 20. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So rather than go directly and just arrest him, they send spies to infill, like a mole, <laughs> person who will pretend to be a truth seeker, someone who just wants to know how to obey God's law. So they sent these people, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, they sent these spies to infiltrate the circle of those people that were with Jesus and to ask these leading questions that they hoped would incriminate Jesus Christ when he answered them. The Jews had lost the power to put somebody to death. Only the Romans could do that. So what they needed to do is they needed to catch Jesus in a statement that was against Rome. If they could catch Jesus committing a crime against Rome, then the Herodians would run to the Romans and tell the Romans what Jesus had just done. The Romans would come and arrest Jesus. And if it was a serious enough offense, they could execute him. Now, what, what kind of a offense do you think that the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus to commit? What would be so serious that the Romans might even execute him for that? Yes, insurrection, sedition. Sedition is when someone by his word stirs up the masses to revolt against the government. Well, Jesus got this massive following, and if they can get him to say, no, you shouldn't be paying your taxes to Caesar, then Rome's going to be on that quick. Because they can't allow this man to stir up this, this uh, nation that's under their thumb. They've subjugated them. They can't allow them to have this revolt against Rome's power. So that's what they do. The spies are posing as truth seekers. And I like the old Puritan John Trapp. He says, here is a clean white glove put over a dirty hand. In other words, they pretended that they're only seeking the truth. There's the white glove, but it's got this dirty hand underneath because they have these wrong, foul, wicked motives. They just want to put him to death. Now, how do they begin? Before they even ask the question, how do they begin? Verse 22. Or 21. They question him saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Now why do you suppose they're saying all of that before they get to their question? What's going on in their minds? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever heard of buttering somebody up? <laughs> This is flattery of the most intense kind. They're flattering Jesus. Notice that these spies, these moles, call him teacher. Now, teacher was a title of respect. Did these spies respect Jesus? They hated him. They wanted him dead. It must have galled them to have to speak to him in this respectful tone of voice in the midst of the other people because they didn't respect him. They say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. 
You're not partial to anyone. You teach the way of God in truth. Now, was that a lie or was that truth? When they said, teacher, you speak and teach correctly, was that true? Yes, that was true. You're not partial to anyone. Was that true? Yeah, Jesus wasn't afraid of man. He didn't have the fear of man. Did he teach the way of God in truth? Yeah, so they're telling the truth, but they're telling it with bad motives. They're un these underhanded evil motives. Yeah, it's true. Jesus did speech and speak and teach correctly. He wasn't partial to anyone. He did teach the way of God in truth. But the reason they come at him with these, these flatteries is because they're trying to puff up his ego. They think if they can just puff him up, they didn't know him very well because he can't be puffed up. <laughs> but they thought if we can just puff up his ego, then he's going to think, yeah, I'm not partial to anyone. I always speak the truth no matter what. They're trying to get him to say something ill-advisedly against Rome in a moment where he's not really thinking. And so they're, they're, they're giving all these compliments so that he will go ahead and say something that they can then use to incriminate him. So that's how they began. Now we finally get to the question in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if you were to read Matthew and Mark's version of this, they have an interesting little note. They said, is it lawful for us to pay the poll tax? P-O-L-L dash tax. And I thought to myself, what in the world is that? I don't know what a poll tax is. So I did some research. A poll tax was a tax that the Roman government placed upon every Jew... Now, it was every male from 14 years to 65 years. It was every female from 12 years to 65 years, merely because they existed. <laughs> if you were alive between those years, you had to pay this tax. They had no other reason other than they were, it was, they were demanding tribute from the Jewish people. You paid it annually, and the amount you paid was a denarius. A denarius was one day common working man's earnings, if he went out and worked one day in the fields, he'd come back, they'd give him a denarius. Yeah. The Jews had to pay it. Now, I'm not sure, maybe the Romans had subjugated other people by this time, and maybe they levied it on them. I'm not sure about that, but I, knew, I do know that the Jews did have to pay it. Right. Yeah. Because they're Jews, and because they could. Because they could demand that of them. So that was the poll tax. Why did they ask him this question? That's the next thing we need to ask. What was their purpose in asking Jesus this question about taxes? You see, it was one of those questions that was a catch-22. No matter how you answered it, you were wrong. It was like the lawyer who, in, in court, says to the defendant, Have you stopped beating your wife? Now, whatever way he answers that question, he's wrong. If he says... Have you stopped? Yes, I've stopped. Well, that means you used to beat her. No, I haven't. That means you're still beating her. <laughs> no matter how you answer that, you're wrong. And here's a question that they designed. I mean, they, these guys are smart. <laughs> Should we pay the tax to Caesar or not? Now, if they say no, if Jesus says no, you shouldn't pay that tax to Caesar. Like I said, the Herodians are going to the Romans. They're coming. They're going to arrest him. They're going to put him in prison. And they may even execute him for insurrection. 
If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, he's going to lose his following amongst the Jews because the Jews hate the Romans and they don't want to pay taxes to the Romans. And not only that, but all the Jews believe that when the Messiah came, he would be anti-Rome because they believed that the Messiah was an earthly deliverer, that he was going to deliver them from Roman oppression. This Messiah would deliver them from whoever was subjugating them at that time, and that uh, Israel would then be the greatest nation in the world. The Messiah would rule as king from Jerusalem. And so he can't be pro-Rome. So if Jesus says, yes, you ought to pay your taxes to Rome, he's just lost all of his following. No one's going to believe that he could possibly be the Messiah. So there's no way to answer this correctly. Either way, Jesus loses. Either way, they win. Well, let's see what happens. Let's look at the discerning answer of Jesus Christ. Verse 23. But he detected their trickery. So was Jesus fooled? No. <laughs> of course not. Jesus so often would just read the hearts of people. He knew what was going on in their minds. In fact, over in John chapter 2, the, the last couple of verses of John chapter 2, It says, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew. He wasn't fooled at all. He could smell, he, he could whiff out <laughs> this trickery and this deception a mile away. He knew it was coming. He knew exactly what they were trying to do to him. So how did he respond then? Well, let's see. Verse 24, show me a denarius. Evidently, Jesus didn't have one to pull out of his pocket. It's just a little interesting side, side note. You know, he, Jesus depended on his father for everything that he needed, and his, his father always provided for him. But he didn't have one of his own. He says, show me one. Show me a denarius. And then he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Whose likeness and inscription? The Jews didn't like this coin. They didn't like the coinage of Rome because on this denarius was a picture of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was a blaspheming pagan Gentile who was subjugated them and demanding tribute money from them. And on the back side, on the front side you had, just like we do, you know, George Washington's picture or something, on the back side there was an inscription. And the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the august god and you think what in the world does august mean i thought that was a month of the year <laughs> the word august means venerable or respected or exalted so he's saying he is the respected or venerable or august son of the august god tiberius caesar claimed to be the son of god in fact the, the roman emperors all claimed deity and the roman people would would worship them in one way or another and so they hated this coin because they thought it was idolatrous to put this man's picture and then an inscription saying he's the son of God on it. Blasphemy. Idolatry. What was their duty to Caesar? Now notice carefully what Jesus says. Verse 25. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We'll just stop there for a minute. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. These Jews were carrying around in their pockets 
Caesar's coins. That coin had Caesar's picture on it. It had his inscription on it, his title on it. So they're his coins. Only the Caesar had the authority to mint these coins. They're using the coins to buy and to sell. And so Jesus says, render back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, those are his. They belong to him. He, it's by his authority that he minted them. You could not use them unless he, owning them, had allowed you the privilege and opportunity to use his coinage to buy and sell. And Jesus uses the word here, render. The word render means to give back as an obligation or a debt. In other words, you owe Caesar some of this money that he has allowed you to use to do business with. You owe him some. It's a debt, an obligation that you owe. Now, why would they have an obligation to pay taxes to Caesar? He's a pagan. He's a blasphemer. He's an idolater. Well, even though that's all true, Caesar was providing certain benefits to the Jewish people. Number one, protection. The Roman army was incredibly powerful. And if anybody tried to make war against the Jewish people, they'd have to go through Rome to get to the Jewish people. Rome's soldiers protected the Jews as one of theirs. Not only protection and security, but also their roads. At this time in history, the Romans had had created all of these vast roads so that you could travel all over the Roman Empire very easily. And so the Jews took advantage of that. Remember, the Jews lived all over the Mediterranean world. And three times a year they had to make that trip back into Jerusalem to worship God. So they took advantage of the, the Roman system, the transportation, the public roads. And thirdly, the one that Jesus mentioned, these coins, these Roman coins. They were enabled to do business. They couldn't use their coins. They had to use Rome's coins. But they were able to do business by using the currency of the day. So those three right off the bat that I could think of. There were certain benefits that Caesar and the Roman government provided to the Jews, even though it galled them. And it was their obligation and debt to give back a portion in taxes to the Roman government. That's their duty to Caesar. Now, what was their duty to God? Interestingly, they didn't ask about their duty to God, but Jesus answers it anyway. And my hunch, my hunch is that this is the most important part of Jesus' teaching here. Even more important than what our duty is to Caesar. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Give back to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus didn't have to say anything about this because they weren't asking him. That's why I think this is what we ought to be emphasizing whenever we go to this passage. Give back to God the things that are God's. Now, think about this with me. The emperor had his image on that coin. Jesus said, therefore, give him back what is his. God has put his image on other things. Who has he put his image on? every person that he's ever created. Therefore, give back to God what is his. Because you and every person in this world have been created in the image of God. You have an obligation and a debt to give yourself back to God. You see the point? 
So that was their duty to God. Now let's, let's wrap this up with some concluding application. And I have three of them this morning. Number one, folks, we need to understand our dual citizenship. Jesus is making it clear that as Christians, as New Testament Christians, we have a dual citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in, front, is in heaven from which we await our Savior. So we are citizens of heaven. That's our true home. That's, that's where we are ultimately going to end up as. But in the meantime, we're living on this earth. So we're citizens of earth. We're citizens of heaven all at the same time. The Apostle Paul calls Christians ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ. Now an ambassador is a diplomatic representative from one country who goes to another country and he lives in that other country representing his government over there, right? Now that ambassador has got to, he's got to do two things. He's got a, a difficult life because he has to properly represent his country and obey all of its laws and fulfill all of its obligations, but he's also got to obey all the laws of the new country that he's living in, and fulfill its obligations. And as Christians, that's the same thing that's true of us. We must fulfill the obligations of heaven, seeking to please our Heavenly Father, but we also have duties that pertain to this earth that we live in, this world that we live in. So we have this dual citizenship that we must exist in and be exemplary in. So, you just need to understand, we've got more than one responsibility. We've got responsibilities to heaven, we've got responsibilities to earth, responsibilities to God, responsibilities to man. Number two, we should obey earthly, earthly government. We should obey earthly government. And I want to springboard from Luke 20 and take you to Romans 13. And I'll probably say some things, I don't know if, I'm not sure about this, but usually this is a place that people violently disagree. And I've met many people that are going to strongly disagree with what I'm about to say. But I'm just going to read the Bible. And it's pretty clear, I think. Every, this is Romans 13.1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Even communist governments, even wicked governments, evidently. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. I'll stick my neck out now. <laughs> I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but our country was birthed in opposition to our government. We rebelled against our government. Seems to me we were violating Scripture when we did that. I could be wrong. Maybe there's something I don't understand. But it seems to me it doesn't match up to what I read here in the Bible. Even if they were wicked, even if they were ungodly, even if they were unfairly taxing us, I don't think that gives us the right to oppose what God has told us to do here in Scripture. Verse 3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, that is, rulers, 
government. It is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Number one, not only because of wrath, but number two, but also for conscience sake. You do it because of your relationship to God. See, Christians should be model citizens. We do it out of conscience sake towards God. We also do it because we don't want to be put in jail. <laughs> we don't want to be executed for breaking the law. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Now look at verse 7, very, very careful. Verse 7, Render, very word Jesus used, Render to all what is due them, Tax to whom taxes do. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Pay your taxes. Pay the customs. Honor the king. Fear those who have been put in authority over you. That's the word of God. Romans 13, 1-7. You think, well, maybe Paul got it wrong. Actually, Paul is speaking the same thing Jesus just said, isn't he? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But let's look at Peter. What did Peter have to say about this? Go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 2. Okay, 1 Peter 2.13. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord... This is interesting. For the Lord's sake. Did you catch that? That sanctifies anything we do, if we can do it unto the Lord. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Every one. Whether to a king, as the one in authority, or to governors, as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. Peter is just saying the exact same thing we just read in Romans 13. Verse 15, For such is the will of God, Okay, that's a strong statement. It is God's will that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He calls obeying governmental authorities as the will of God and doing what is right. Scripture says that. Verse 16, Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Verse 17, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king, honor him. So how would we make application today? We don't live in a government like they did. In fact, their government was far worse than ours. Even though ours is going downhill fast, theirs was worse. At the time that Peter was writing, Caesar Nero was the emperor. Nero was a crazy man who delighted in persecuting and killing Christians. And Peter said, submit to him and honor him. And you say, how in the world could a Christian possibly do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> By the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the only answer I've got. So today, folks, it's our duty to pay our taxes, even if we don't like it, even if we think it's too much. That's our duty. We are to be exemplary in how we do this. We are to respect and honor our governing officials, even if we don't... 
if we can't agree with their morality or their lifestyle, which I can't, I still need to honor the office. And I think it is wrong and sinful for us to go around insulting and name-calling our president or our governor or other officials, calling police pigs and things like that. I, I don't think that's Christian. I don't think it's biblical. We need to have an honoring attitude towards them. The Scripture tells us that, right? We just read it. So that's part of our duty. We should obey the laws of the land. And this can get difficult, because sometimes it seems like there's no good reason for it, that they're just oppressing you because they want to get the, the fee <laughs> to do this or that. But we, we have to obey the laws of our land. The, this is the duty that God has imposed upon us as earthly citizens, right? We're citizens of this world. This is our duty as citizens of this world. There is one exception, of course, and that exception is when a governing authority tells us to do something that God has forbidden or tells us we cannot do something God has commanded. Because God is a higher authority than any king, any president, any governor, any policeman. God is higher. He trumps anybody else. So, if the government tells us that we may not pray, that we may not evangelize, that we may not meet together and worship. Can you think of something else? If they tell you to do any of those things, God has called, commanded us to do all of those things. If they say you may not worship, then we have to uh, respectfully and non-violently refuse and take whatever consequence the government gives us. Now, there are gray areas. I know that some people have believed very, very strongly that uh, abortion is criminal, and it is. It's murder. And so they have actually um, stood and, and blocked abortion clinics so that people cannot get in or out. They haven't been violent. They're not bombing them. They're just, they're just sitting there protesting it. And they have been willing to be arrested and put in jail because they feel that is so wicked a crime that they have to do something to stop it. So th there are some areas where there's some gray. Some Christians would look at that as going too far. Some would say, no, that's what we have to do. I think we have to go before the Lord in our own conscience and decide on some of these issues. But if government is not forbidding you to do what God has commanded or commanding you to do something God has forbidden, then our responsibility is to obey them and do what they tell us. Number three, third point of application today, we should devote ourselves to God. And I think this is probably the strongest point that Jesus is making. Our duty, in fact, the duty of all men, the duty of every person in this world. You know, you go knocking on doors and you talk to people and they have, want nothing to do with the gospel. It is still their duty to do what Jesus calls here. It's their duty to give themselves back to God. God's image and likeness is on their soul. It's God's. That person is God's. He created them. He has rights over them. It is their obligation and duty to give themselves and all that they are back to God. And that's our duty as Christians. And I began to think about that. Well, how does that work out? Render to God the things that are God's. What are the things that are God's? Well, first of all, yourself. You. Are you giving yourself to God? Or are you living for the lusts of your flesh and the pleasures of the world 
Are you really giving yourself to God? Not only you, but your time, because we're servants of the Lord. A servant didn't have his own time. Now, the master could give him some time if he wanted to, but he, it wasn't up to him to decide what to do or when he wanted to take a break. <laughs> he worked when the master told him to. We're servants of Christ, and he's called us to obey him with our time, to use our time. Not only our time, but our money, our possessions. Those are God's, right? Doesn't God own everything in this world, including everything? We don't know. The truth is we don't own anything. <laughs> we're just stewards. We're money managers for God. And we, we're either good money managers or bad money managers. And one day we're going to give an account, I believe, for how we used our time, how we used our money, and much more than that. Are we... My, my concern and fear is that there's probably a majority of professing Christians who don't even think about the fact that this money is God's. They don't pray about it. They don't think about it. They do whatever they want to with their money, thinking that, well, I don't have to answer for this. My friend, we do. <laughs> we have to think about it. Would, would the Lord be pleased with this, or would He be opposed to this? And try to be honest with that. Not only that, but our abilities, our talents. What talents do you have? Some people are gifted in singing. Others playing musical instruments. Some people are gifted with computers or mechanical abilities. Some can sew and some can cook. Whatever you're good at, we, we should devote that and dedicate that to the glory of God. We can serve each other. In fact, Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 4. To use your gift to serve one another in love. So what are your talents? Have you consecrated those talents to the glory of Christ and the good of His church? Render to God the things that are God's. Also worship. Our worship is due God. Right? It's due Him. Over in Romans 1, it says that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the problem. God has wired people to be worshipers. That's why no matter where you go in the world, people are worshiping something. Usually we worship the wrong object. We worship the San Francisco 49ers. We worship Barry Bonds. We worship rock stars, movie stars, sports heroes. We worship money. Power, sex, beauty. We worship all the wrong things. And what's that called? It's called idolatry, isn't it? Worship is due unto the living God. Render to God the things that are God's. And whenever we take our supreme love and devotion from Him and fixate on something down here, we're violating what Jesus told us to do. Render to God the things that are God's. The last one I considered was obedience. That's God's, our obedience. We, the obedience of our life is due unto the one who made us and gave us life. We would have no existence, right, apart from Him. So we are to give back to Him an obedient lifestyle. That's just coming back, and we've been doing that, haven't we? Oh, again and again and again as we've been working through Luke, we've seen the principle of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ of obedience to Christ as master and king. And that's where we come back again afresh today. So let me just ask you as we contemplate these things and meditate on them, what about you? 
First of all, are you rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Some people don't pay their taxes. I know people, they, they just don't even pay their income tax. <laughs> and they just don't, year after year after year, they just don't do nothing with it. Well, eventually, they're going to get caught up. <laughs> and they're going to have interest and fees and penalties, so they'll never be able to pay that thing off. We ought to pay our taxes. But what about you when it comes to rendering to God the things that are God's? That's really probably the one that we need to consider mostly this morning. The Lord has, the Lord God has claim on us. The fact that we are alive and breathing today is because of His grace. The fact that we live in America and we are wealthy compared to all the nations of the world, probably 90% of the world's were filthy rich here in America. I, I heard David Platt say once that half of the world makes $2 a day or less. Okay, so we're rich. We enjoy that. We enjoy uh, our freedoms in this country. The freedom to assemble, the freedom of speech, the freedom of, of religion. Now that may be taken away from us eventually, but we still have it now. Thank God. God has given us so much, and it is only right that we return, that we render back to Him. What did we say? Our, our time, our money, our abilities, our worship, and our obedience. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. If there's some area of our life, Lord, that we are being disobedient to you, please, Holy Spirit, put your finger on that and, and shed that light in our heart. Help us to see and convict us of that, that we might turn and repent. Lord, if we are being disobedient to governing authorities, Lord, that is sin. We, we repent of that this morning. We, we, we turn. Change of direction, Lord. And Lord, if we have been using our time, money, abilities, worship and obedience in all the wrong areas and not giving that to you, Lord, we repent this morning. Please deal with us, Lord, and enable us to be those kinds of people that we are pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' holy name, amen.